All right, um, we're going to do the Feast of Tabernacles Part 2 is what we're doing here tonight. Uh, we did Part 1, I don't know when, uh, my days have all mixed together here through this week, but was it last Saturday that we did that one? Okay, so um, yeah, we've covered a lot of ground since then, but um, anyway, last time we kind of talked about what it is. Where did it come from in the Bible? Why is it called the Feast of Nations? Why is it called the Feast of Sukkot? Uh, why is it called Tabernacles, the Feast of Dedication? All of these different terminologies, and all of them have reasons biblically why it's called that. But today we want to talk about why this is so important, why we do this. Because, again, it seems like a Jewish thing, when in fact, nowhere in the Bible really is it called that. It's called the Lord's Festivals. And I've said this many a time, but I want those listening to hear this, that without understanding these festivals, you really can't understand Scripture, because Scripture is built around these. They are the appointed times of the Lord, and they are going to do these things. Now, I also do not believe that you can understand why Jesus did what he did in the New Testament if you don't understand these festivals. And so we have often lost that meaning because we have ignored these, sweeping them under the rug as some old, you know, archaic thing or a Jewish thing rather than a Jesus thing. So tonight we're going to show you how Jesus, when he came his first time, as well as when he comes again, is really our tabernacle. That's what this is about. It's not about learning about the Jews. It's not about learning about a festival. It's about Yeshua Jesus. All right. So let us begin here. I want to show you a little bit what went on uh, actually at the feast of Sukkot, dedication, feast of nations, whatever you call it. It's all the same. They're all biblical names. What we see is that on this, during this festival, there was a 75-foot candlestick. And the priests at this year, there were three sets of priests. One of them were these uh, water bearers or that would go up uh, and take these huge seven-gallon jugs of oil up a 75-foot ladder to get to the top to light these candles where there were four bowls on the top. And then for the wick of this, they would use the garments of the priests that were used on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Now we talked about that before, that on Yom Kippur, that garment the priest would take off and he was never to wear it again as Yeshua, Jesus, took off his garment and it was never to be worn again. He took off his grave clothes, in essence. And so he's, he's fitting everything here. Now, because of this huge 75-foot candlestick, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, it's up on a hill. Now, you add a 75-foot candlestick on top of that by the temple, it could be seen for miles. And it is not an accident, as we will see here in a minute, that not only was Jerusalem called the light of the world, but Jesus himself is going to call himself the light of the world. Because it isn't about some earthly tabernacle. You might remember us talking about the temple. And we get all concerned about this third temple that's going to be built. Oh, it's going to be built. But remember, it's already been built too, on a spiritual sense. There is a physical one, but I'm looking at the spiritual one. Jesus said, he's going to make you in whom the Spirit dwells. You are that third temple. 
Man has another idea. The devil has another idea. They will build that. But it's not about the physical temple. It's about the spiritual purpose. It's about Jesus. And that is what you're going to see. So Jesus, on this festival, during this festival, in John 8, 12, says, I am the light of the world. That was not a phrase that was new. When he said that, the Jews wouldn't have been going, what, light, light of the world? What was what he talking about? They all knew, no, Jerusalem, this is the light of the world. And he says, no, I am. I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I love, do you know that I can show you every single chapter but one, I can show you in the Bible, happens during the festivals, biblical festivals. Every single one of them in the whole entire book of John. Now, I believe that chapter that I can't prove it to you is also happening at the festival. It just doesn't say it there. The entire book of John. So you tell me that you can understand the book of John if you don't understand the biblical festivals? I'd say you're missing something. And because of an anti-Semitic attitude that our society has had, we have missed something. I think you'll see that here tonight. This was a great joy to see this candle lit Historians tell us that there was about two and a half million people that were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This was one of the three festivals that God commanded in his word that you were to go to Jerusalem to celebrate. So two and a half million people praising God. I mean, you think it gets a little crazy around here at times. This was a celebration. So anyway, you got four young priests that are going to carry up this oil to the top. Now, on the last and greatest day of this feast, there are a seven-day festival with an eighth day added on to it, right? On that last and greatest day, the rabbis would then go out, the, the priests would go out and get water from the pool of Siloam. And what they're going to do is they're going to pour it out in the temple. Now, I'm going to talk about it a little bit more in a minute. But two priests, one would have water in his jar and the other would have wine in that jar. And they would pour it out. Now, physically, this was a symbol of God. Basically, you know, this is the feast of ingathering, not only the fruit harvest, but also as a picture of end times. We saw that this morning, how as a picture of end times, the ingathering, God is going to uh, harvest the earth. So... This was a picture of God blessing the harvest and that he would provide rain this next year. So on a physical, symbolic sense, that's what the Jews saw. But there was much more to it than that. As I said, there were three different groups of priests. There were those that were sacrificing the animals on this day. Seventy bulls. I mean, it was just a bloody mess. But... Again, that is to point us to our sacrifice of Jesus. There was also the water pourers, and that's these two right here. The water pourers went out to the pool of Siloam. Those of you who went to Israel with us before got to see the pool of Siloam. And this pool had what was called living water. Uh, basically, all that is is it's water that's moving. 
okay, uh, not stagnant. They would get this living water and bring it in these vessels. The high priest would have a golden vessel that he would draw it out with, and then his assistant just carried around this vase, or this, uh, not vase, but basically vessel of wine. And so they would, would go back to the temple, and it was a great procession that was going on, and both of them would pour it down so that it would run down the side of the altar there. So the third group here you can see are the branch carriers. They would go out and cut these huge branches. Historians say some of them 25 feet long, these big branches, to wave back and forth as these guys would march to the temple. That it was just this huge celebration. The priests coming into Jerusalem, this is just what the Jews teach, was a symbol of the Spirit of God coming upon Jerusalem, bringing the blessings into Jerusalem. So don't lose that Jesus is our high priest, bringing those blessings into Jerusalem. Now, we could talk a little bit more about that, but he comes at an unknown time, all of these type of things for this festival. Maybe you'll see it on some of the verses coming up. But what's neat about it is... Traditionally, year after year after year, they always they had certain songs that they would sing. One of them was called the Hallel, which comes from Psalm 118, which I have here. Just part of it, verses 14 and 15, it says this, The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. My salvation. You know what that word is, right? Yeshua. People always ask me, why do you say Yeshua? Why do you? Because I want to prove a point. I want you to catch that, that Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament. When they're crying out for my salvation, that is what Yehoshua, Joshua, Jesus, same name, Yeshua, is Yah, Yahshua, Shua is saves. The Lord, Yah, saves. He is my salvation. Yeshuati. And so what we end up seeing is God arranged, as you're going to see, a birthday party for himself that when he's coming into town, they are singing the Hallel, singing, the Lord is my strength, my song, and he has become Yeshua, my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. It's talking about this going on in the tabernacle of God. Now, notice here the tabernacles of the righteous. You guys are the tabernacles now. You are in what the Spirit dwells in. This is just one of them. Isaiah 12, verses 2 and 3 is another verse that is always read during this feast. They also would sing, Behold, God is my salvation, Yeshua. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord, Yehovah, is my strength and my song. He also has become my Yeshua, my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. They call this the living water. Jesus is the living waters. And he's saying here in Isaiah to draw water out of the wells of salvation, the waters of salvation. And so they're... In a sense, when they're coming back to the temple from drawing this water and they're singing these songs based on these verses, they're calling out his name. 
and they didn't even realize it. But that's what was going on. It is not an accident that on this festival, the Bible says this, I'm not you know, trying to fit this in, it's what's in scripture, that Jesus says this on this day. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at, was at hand. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. In the last day, the great day of the feast, remember I told you that this last day, we're going to talk about it more later, but that last eighth day, Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. The very day that these priests are pouring out the water, getting the living water, he is going to say, I'm the living water. You thirsty? Come to me. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. I can just see that while everybody's watching these priests doing their thing, he's going, it's about me. You guys thirsty? You want living waters? You know what these things are. You want come to me. Not an accident. This day, that this is when he declares this truth. Now, this eighth day, as I said, there's a seven-day festival with an eighth day added on to it. The eighth day is all throughout Scripture. Craig, you were talking about this here a couple weeks ago or last week. I don't remember. All over the place in the Old Testament. The eighth day, just go do a word search in your concordance for eighth day. Do a search on that. There is prophetic symbolism all through the Old Testament about this eighth day. Whether it be from circumcision to all kinds of other events that take place on this eighth day. I personally, now I can't prove this fully scripturally, but I think it makes sense... The Jews have believed that every day of creation was a pattern of a thousand years of history. Martin Luther taught it. Many people throughout history have taught that. I think there's all kinds of pictures in Scripture that would suggest that as well. A day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. That has nothing to do with saying each day of creation is millions of years. It's that picture that a day of creation is like a thousand years. We've talked about this as we've been going through the book of Revelation. That pattern of four, two, one, in all the sevens, whether it be the churches, the seals, the trumpets, the vials, or all of history, that pattern is there. 4,000 years to Jesus, 2,000 years of New Testament, and then your seventh day, which is Hebrews chapter 4, what we're waiting for. There still remains a Sabbath rest for all God's people, that seventh day millennial rest. So now you've got your seven days, but what about the eighth day? You see, when I read scripture and I get to the millennial reign, that's not the end of the story. There's something beyond the millennial reign, beyond this thousand years, an eighth day, a new beginning. So the Jews throughout history, when they talked about creation, have referred to the day after creation as the eighth day because it's a beginning, a new beginning. You had your seven days of creation and well, now we start over. Likewise... Every week we go through, you get to the Sabbath and then there's a new beginning and you start over. So possibly this eighth day is heaven. Not just the millennial reign, but heaven when the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven. And it will be for eternal 
uh, eternity, I should say. 2 Peter 3, verses 12 through 13 says this, Looking for and hasting, hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we according to his promise, look for new heaven and new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's after the millennium there. That's not the millennium. The millennium's on earth. This is going to be destroyed. But there will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Deuteronomy 31. This festival is one of my favorites and it's because, it's because I get sick of this world sometimes. You know, Dan Woods helped me with that a little bit tonight to kind of, you know, help me get a little bit more sick of it. But there's a day coming when this is all going to be fixed. And this festival, that is what this is about. Deuteronomy 31, 10 through 12 says, Moses commanded them saying, at the end of every seven years, okay, that would be a Sabbath of years, in the solemnity of the year of release, in the Feast of Tabernacles, that's what we're here celebrating, when all Israel is come to appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, which was Jerusalem, Thou shalt read this law, okay, this Torah, before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and children, and thy stranger that is within thy gates, that they may hear, that they may learn, and fear the Lord your God, and observe to do all the words of this law. What's supposed to happen at the Feast of Tabernacles? He told them to do this year after year after year. In the Feast of Tabernacles, at when? At the end of seven years. In other words, I think that this is symbolically telling you at the end of 7,000 years after the millennial reign that God's coming back and he's going to gather you to Jerusalem, which is why you were supposed to go to Jerusalem to do this the new Jerusalem that comes out of heaven. And what is he going to do? He's going to read the law in our presence. Why? So that not only are the people gathered, but that they may hear it, that they may learn it. And by the way, what does that cause? The fear of the Lord. We've talked about this many times. We have destroyed the fear of the Lord. Oh, we're, God's our buddy. Hey, Daddy. No, 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 no. You respect and have reverence to the creator of this world. And you should have a healthy fear of God. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Even in the New Testament, it talks about the fear of God. So when you are gathered and you hear the word, and then you learn it, it's the word that gives you an understanding of who God is. And then you are going to do what? You observe it. You follow it. You keep it. Now, I want you to take note of this because this is huge because this is the pattern of the Feast of Tabernacles everywhere we see it. Gather the people, teach the word so you learn it, and then you do it. That is the pattern all the way into the New Testament, all the way until the Lord comes back. I like that. We're going to see some other verses here, but I can tell you this. At the Feast of Tabernacles, I will show you biblically, that is when the Lord is coming back and he's going to clean up this mess that the church has made. Yeah, the church has made the mess. The world, 
They didn't make the mess. We did. Because we didn't stand firm against sin. We didn't stand firm on truth. This is our fault. Don't blame the world. Don't keep looking at the world and say, oh, those evil, it's that. No, 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 no. You, we are the ones. But this is what's going to happen on the eighth day. Now, you're going to see this as we go on, but you're going to see why this is my favorite festival. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He's speaking of end times here. Something that has not yet happened. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. And all nations, remember that this is called the Feast of Nations. Other nations are allowed, they're invited into the sukkah, even to this day in Israel. They're invited in. It says, all nations shall flow unto it, unto Jerusalem. Where does the Bible say that God is going to call people at the end times? Jerusalem, Mount Zion. I bet I could give you 30 scripture verses saying that, right? Here's one of them. All nations shall be flow unto it. Many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and he will teach us his ways. Remember what the pattern was, what God told you to do on this festival? Gather together to Jerusalem, teach Torah, teach the law of God, so that you can understand it, so that you'll fear God, and then you'll follow it. And it says, and we will walk, that's following, in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law. When Yeshua comes back, he's going to lead us through tabernacles. We've talked a lot about the law this week, because that's what this is about. He's coming back, folks. And I can't wait for him to clean up the mess that even I have in my own mind at times. I'll tell you, I get so confused sometimes, I can't make any sense of my own thoughts. And I can't wait till where I don't have to wonder anymore to figure things out. But he's going to gather me to Jerusalem. He's going to sit me down. He's going to teach me the law that the church has thrown away today and that the man of lawlessness is trying to convince the church that, hey, it's okay, you're free in Christ. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to observe his commandments. Right? No, he's going to teach us that law so that I fear him, know him, and we're going to be able to be with him. He's going to be our teacher. That, I, I, I can't even tell you how excited I am for that. This is my excited face. My family will tell you that. It looks much like my serious face. It looks much like my sad face. Micah, another verse. It says this. In the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's Jerusalem, shall be established in the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. They're going to be gathered. And many nations shall come. Oh, it's a feast of nations. And say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways. And we will walk in his paths. Gather, teach, do. Isaiah, Micah, Deuteronomy. That's what the Old Testament is showing us. And we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord 
from Jerusalem. He's going to clean it up. You want to talk about a time of rejoicing. No wonder this is called a, a, a festival of rejoicing. Nehemiah. Okay. Do you know, most people don't even know, Nehemiah is taking place at the Feast of Tabernacles. It's what scripture tells us. Nehemiah 8. And all the people gathered themselves together in Jerusalem, gathering there as one man into the street that was before the water gate. Guess what gate the priests went out to get the waters to pour out on the altar? The water gate. That's why it was called the water gate. It went out to the pool of Siloam. You can go see it even today in Jerusalem, even though things are a little different after things have been destroyed and rebuilt again. Okay? Okay? It goes on, and they spoke unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel, upon the first day of the seventh month. When's the feast of... Yeah, here we go. Upon the first day of the seventh month, the feast of trumpets. Okay, trumpets, atonement, we've been talking about this the last month, right? Because, well, the last two weeks. Trumpets, uh, atonement, and tabernacles. All three of these are lumped together in this 15-day period. Okay, now it continues. He read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Gather them to Jerusalem, read the law, teach them so that they can understand it, so that they will do it. It says, On the second day they were gathered together, and unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. That's why it's called the feast of Sukkot, booths. Okay? Anyway, Nehemiah is calling them together in Jerusalem at this time to read the law, to teach them about it, so that they will follow it. This is the pattern all throughout Scripture. It continues in Nehemiah 8.13. They that should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches, and pine branches, and myrtle branches, and palm branches, and branches of thick trees to make booths, sukkahs. As it is written, also day by day, from the first day unto the last day, he read in the book of the law of God, they kept the feast seven days. You don't keep atonement seven days. Okay? You keep Sukkot for seven days. They are celebrating. And then it says, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly. That's coming this Monday. This Monday is the eighth day, this, this solemn assembly, the great and final day. And so they did this, and exactly what the pattern, what Deuteronomy said, what all these prophecies say, is what they did. Gather. Teach, 
and do. Well, let's get back here a little bit into the New Testament. Because this is where it gets good. The same pattern Jesus is going to do. After he proclaimed himself the living waters there on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, look what the Jews say here in John chapter 7. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Then answered them the Pharisees, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people, who knoweth not the law, are cursed. Isn't that interesting? The Jews, the people who are supposed to know the law, they said, these people who know not the law are cursed. Sounds to me like somebody maybe should teach them the law. Like they need somebody to come and explain it to them so that they can do it right. Right? So the priest said not, where is the Lord? It says here in Jeremiah 2.8, that they that handle the law knew me not. Wait a minute, they that handle the law, those would be what we would call the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, knew me not. Jeremiah, this is prophetic of, of Jesus being here, I believe, at the Temple Mount right now, and Jesus coming, his first coming. These people who handle the law, and by the way, in the Old Testament, they saw the same thing. The priests, they, they were one supposed to handle the law, they didn't know God. I, I dare say most pastors today in churches don't know how to handle the law. The ones that are supposed to know him. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. See, when Jesus said, I am the living waters, don't think that there wasn't a Jew there that didn't know what he was talking about. Okay, he wasn't making up new terms. They knew their scriptures. And hewned out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now I'm not going to get into all the details of this, but I'll put it in short. The Jews viewed water as the law, connecting the word Torah and, and just the, the roots of these words of water and so on. But they connected the word and water together, like the law and water. So what I want you to see is he's saying these people rejected the living water. They built doctrines that didn't follow the truth. They have, they've tried to put water in cisterns that don't hold it. Their, their heart, the word doesn't fit in them. They don't understand it. He says, they've hewned out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no truth. I think we've set up a system in America and really around the world in Christianity. We have set up a system that doesn't hold truth. We're following traditions that aren't biblical. We're teaching things that are outright anti-biblical. This is exactly what has happened in Christianity. Maybe this is exactly what we have in our own home, in our own lives. Maybe, maybe your life. That you have a, a cistern that will not hold the water because you have so many things that you've brought in from your culture, from your upbringing, from your your you know, your church doctrines, something that's maybe not biblical, won't hold water. John 8, 1. 
So we see here what's happened. John 7, I'm the living waters, they're rejecting me, right? They, they rejected him. John 8, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again into the temple. Now, by the way, when the Lord comes back, where is he going to put his feet on, by the way? <coughs> Mount of Olives. And it seems to be during this time period, right? And it's this time period. He goes out to the Mount of Olives in the morning. He came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him. People gathered to him. Here's this guy. He's out at Mount of Olives, comes into the temple, and everybody comes to him, gathers them together. He sat down and taught them. Hmm, gather, teach. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? And what is Jesus going to do? We've talked about this story before. Jesus is going to uphold the law 100%. In other words, he gathers them, he teaches them, he is about to show them where they're wrong. He's going to clean up the mess that they made. And he's going to say, Moses said this, and he's going to say, no, 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 you misunderstand Moses. Let me tell you what Moses meant by this. Let me show you the truth of the law. Gather teach, instruct so that you understand it and then do it. What do they end up doing? Walking away. Following what Jesus teaches. Same pattern on the exact day. This is early in the morning after the, the eighth day. Follow it in John. This is the eighth day of Sukkot when this incident happens. So, after he does his instruction, what does he do? He bends down and he writes in the dirt. I used to always say the names of their girlfriends. Okay, but that's not... I, that, that isn't it. I think he was writing Yahweh in the dirt. Because that would not have gone past them they would have understood when he wrote Yahweh because where is he at? In the temple. This is the dust of the temple. Now, I'm not going to get into all the details. You can go back and listen to it on before, but remember we talked about this. When a woman was caught into adultery, there was the Bible in the Old Testament told you what you were supposed to do. Take dust from the temple... Put Yahweh's name on a piece of paper, mix that dust and Yahweh's name in water, and have her drink it. If she's guilty, then the Lord would, you know, take care of it. If she was innocent, nothing would happen. That whole pattern fits here. I won't get into the details, but just to remind you if you remember us talking about that earlier. But right now, look at what it says in John 8 here. And they which heard it, heard what? Heard Jesus, he says, Moses said this, what do you say? He was without sin, cast, you know, the first stone, these things. When they had heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, 
went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Moses says this in the law, what do you say? Conviction. The message Jesus gave convicted. He gathered, he taught, he convicted. They were ashamed, and they do. All on the Feast of Tabernacles. The pattern that was prophesied, that will take place in the future, the pattern that we saw at Nehemiah, in Micah, all of these verses, same thing in John 8. On the day. That's not an accident that this is happening on this day. The very day before this, these are the same people who had rejected the living water. The very same people. Now they're ashamed. Let's see what Jeremiah said would happen. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee, all that reject thee, right, shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. I wonder if Jeremiah didn't see this was going to happen. The day before, these people had rejected him. And now, they're ashamed. And he writes them in the dust of the earth. Maybe it was their names with Yahweh. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But this is a fascinating verse because it's connecting these people who forsake him, who are now ashamed, who are written in the dust of the earth, and not only just ashamed, have rejected me, but the fountain of living water, the very thing he just proclaimed himself to be. So, on day eight... He convicted them of their sin, the rejection of the living waters. Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We hear this quoted all the time. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But we don't really know what that means because we don't read the next verse. We only like to memorize short verses. So It goes on, continuing without missing a beat. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. That thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God. Isn't that interesting? When he says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, what's he talking about? Lack of knowledge of what? The law. They have forgotten the law. Like I said, it's not an accident that the Antichrist is a man of lawlessness. It's not an accident that so many churches say, hey, there is no law. God got rid of all that. No, God did not. He says, I did not come uh, to uh, get rid of the law. I came to fulfill it. He says, not one jot, not one tittle will disappear as long as earth and heaven remain. Paul says the law is good as one, uh, Timothy says the law is good as long as one uses it properly. Romans says, do we then nullify the law? No, we uphold the law. He says, is the law bad? No, the law is good. It is holy, righteous, and good, Paul says in Romans. I mean, I could give you six, eight verses alone in Romans, let alone Timothy and all over the place. But yet, somehow we've got this idea, no, law is bad. 
No, I'll tell you what was bad, the condemnation of the law. I mean, you guys know this. The condemnation of the law was bad. Thank you, Jesus, that you took away the condemnation, but not the law. Thank you that that law cannot save me because I can't, I can't keep it. Thank you for keeping it for me. But now, as we talked about here the other day, I want to keep it. He's put that law on my heart because I love him. I want to keep the law. I know I'll fail. No condemnation. Thank you, Jesus, because it's not by, by works that I am saved, but by faith, by grace that I am saved. So, this forgetting of the law, that's just what these priests, these scribes of Jesus' day at this time. This is why when Jesus comes back at the Feast of Tabernacles, when we see this in end times, he's going to come to Mount Zion, and what's going to go out from Mount Zion? The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, because we've forgotten it. We've built ourselves cisterns that hold no water. We've built lives and cultures and traditions that hold no water. Unbiblical things. We need Jesus to come back and to teach us. I love what Tozer says here. He says, how, have you noticed how much praying for revival has been going on of late and how little revival has resulted? I believe the problem is that we have been trying to substitute praying for obeying, and it simply will not work. To pray for revival while ignoring the plain precept laid down in Scripture is to waste a lot of words and get nothing for our trouble. Prayer will become effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. Amen to that. Look at this. Hosea 9. Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim became known as the Gentiles. Ten tribes, or the twelve tribes, they were split. Ten and two. The ten got assimilated into the culture of Assyria and the world. They became known as Gentiles. The Samaritans, they were Gentiles. Those Samaritans were of those lost ten tribes. Ephraim shall return to Egypt. What? Return to Egypt? I, I thought God delivered you from Egypt. Yeah, but they're going to want to return. They're going to want to go back to their culture, what all they knew, what they grew up in. It says, They shall eat unclean things in Assyria. What will you do in the solemn day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? Isn't that interesting? It's connecting a solemn day in the feast Remember, the, what, what's the solemn day of the Feast of Tabernacles? The eighth day when he's coming back. And he says, what are you going to do in this feast day? What are you going to do when I come back? Because you went back to Egypt, back to the unclean things. Because you, you didn't want to follow me. Chapter 6, verse 3 said, Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. He shall come to us as the rain, the latter and former rain to the earth. If we follow, if. We always like to just kind of fly by those ifs, those conditions. Grace is free, but it comes with a great cost. 
It's what it is. Jesus warned you that Christianity would be hard. That you will be persecuted because of me. It comes with a cost. But it's not a cost when we love him. What will you do? The world is calling you back. Egypt is calling. The world that you grew up in, all you knew. Remember, those people in Egypt, that is all they knew. They grew up in Egypt. The entire culture, God was calling them out of. And then in Revelation, it's interesting, we see, come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. Because later, Babylon would be all that they knew. Today, Babylon is all we know. Dan's been telling us about Babylon. Friend, who were the ones in Judah when, uh, when Babylon marched in? And, uh, some of them went to Egypt to flee. Who? I don't... Was that Ephraim? I don't know if it tells us. I'd have to go back and look. It might be some of them. Uh, but doubtful. And here's why. When the Assyrians came in about 722 B.C., those ten tribes were scattered. When Babylon comes, that's like in 586 B.C., and so the ten tribes are already assimilated. However, of those ten tribes, there were some that did escape to Jerusalem and kind of started following the Lord. So there could be a couple of them, but I don't think that's what this is talking about because of that. So, are you going to stay the course? He's coming as the latter rain. That latter rain, by the way, throughout Scripture and the Jews' understanding of it is the fall festivals. I showed you here last week all these pictures. Clearly, this is the time the Lord's coming back. You will not know the day or the hour, but you will know the time and the season. You will know... He's coming back at a certain season. I can tell you biblically, not Brian's opinion, biblically, he's coming back in the fall feasts. Can't tell you exactly which one, what's going to happen, but the Bible is pretty clear. He's coming back to harvest the fruit, the grapes, over and over and over. This is the grape harvest. The Bible gives us some clues of the season and the time. We don't know which one this year, next year. Five years from now? We don't know. But you're going to know the time and the season. Jeremiah 16, 9. Getting ready to close here. O Lord, my strength and my fortress and my refuge in the day of affliction. The Gentiles shall come unto thee from the ends of the earth and shall say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, vanity and things wherein there is no profit. I love this verse. This is speaking of end times. Go look at it. What's supposed to happen? Gentiles are going to come. And they're going to say, our fathers have inherited lies. I got to tell you, I've grown up in a society, in a world, even in a family, that has inherited lies. I believe my family, I mean my mom and dad, they love the Lord, they're in heaven. I don't have any doubt about that. But they had inherited lies that were passed on to me. I don't want to pass those lies on to my children. Okay, things that were 
vanity, things wherein there was no profit. Shall a man make gods unto himself, and they are no gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know mine hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Same like Zechariah 8.23. Remember that verse? We've talked about that before. In the last days, ten men, ten Gentiles will come and take hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, take us with you because we have heard God is with you. Why are ten Gentiles coming on and grabbing on to the hem of one Jew? Because we've inherited lies from our fathers. We've, we've, We've taken on Christmas, Easter, Halloween. We've taken on all these things that we've tried to Christianize, make them, make them these biblical things. Let me recap. Day 1 through 7, the lamp is lit. Jesus claims to be light of the world. Day 7 is the water libation. They pour out the water. Jesus claims to be living waters. Day 8 is that new beginning when the law will go out from Zion. And Jesus goes and explains the law on that very day. Convicts them of their sin. I believe, personally, that Jesus was born on the day of Feast of Tabernacles. Cannot prove to you that he was born on the day. I can show you biblically, though, that he was born around this time. Oh, December 25th, though. No, he... Jesus was born on December 25th. Guys, I don't think you can find a scholar in the world that's going to say, say that. Not a one. December 25th, and we've talked about this before, that's the birthday of Ra, the Egyptian sun god, Zeus, Mithras, all the sun gods. I kind of think Jesus gave us a time of his birth, a time to even celebrate it. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. That is the literal translation of what it says there in John. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Let me just show you real quickly, briefly. Remember there was a priest named Zacharias. The Bible tells us in Chronicles or in, uh, in Luke that he was in the course of Abijah. That's in Luke chapter 1. Chronicles is going to tell us that the course of Abijah, when that is. It's the eighth course of the priests. Back in David's day, they set up these courses of priests, 24 different courses. And there were these, you might say, divisions. Each one of these courses served two weeks at the tabernacle. Well, you got 24 courses. They each served two weeks. That's only 48 weeks. What do you do with the rest? Well, there's 51 weeks on a, on a Jewish calendar. They have 30 days, and then there's a month thing that I won't get into, but bottom line, there's 51 weeks. So that leaves three extra weeks. So what do you do there? Well, on those three extra weeks, all the priests were required to come and serve in the temple because when you're having so many sacrifices at Passover and tabernacles and all that, you, you, the regular priests couldn't do it all. So you serve two weeks out of the year and then during the festivals. All right. John the Baptist, I believe I can show you biblical support, not proof, support that he was conceived at Pentecost. 
another festival. We know that John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. To do the math, that means Jesus would be conceived at Hanukkah, which is around the Christmas time for us. Uh, it's called the Feast of Dedication. So you take nine months from that time, guess what you get to? Here we are. It explains why there'd be no room for him in the inn. Two and a half million Jews coming to Jerusalem. No room. But there was a census, yes, because the Romans would almost always, when they would take a census or do, pay tax, any of those things, it was a time of festivals because people from all around the world, or Israel, I should say, were coming to Jerusalem. Made it easy. So, if you're interested, we can give you more details, but the bottom line is the 8th course of Abijah ministers. Now, that... At this year, Saban 12 to 18. So 40 weeks later, John the Baptist is born on Nisan 14. That'd be Passover. Interestingly, six months later, Kislev 25, that's roughly December 25th, Hanukkah, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, is conceived. Nine months later is Tabernacles, and the word becomes flesh and tabernacles among us. That's kind of an outline. I'm not going to be dogmatic on all this, but like I said, it, it fits, and I think I can show you biblical support for this, and it just makes sense. I can guarantee you this, that he died at Passover. I can guarantee you this, he resurrected on the day of first fruits. I can guarantee you this, the Holy Spirit was given on Shavuot or Pentecost. All three spring festivals had important things for the life of Jesus. It stands to reason that all three of the fall feasts would also have very important things for the life of Jesus, both his first and second coming. And so, like I said, we could talk a lot about that, but I don't want to, I want to kind of wrap up. But I find it neat that as we saw this before in Psalm 18, 118, when Yeshua is coming into Jerusalem, he is the Feast of Tabernacles. He's declaring himself the light of the world, the living waters. God had, in his foreknowledge, perhaps arranged a birthday party for Jesus. Two and a half million people coming and grabbing their, uh, their fronds and, and you know, all their greenery and whatnot, waving it before the Lord, singing Psalm 118. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. And the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He has become Yeshua. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. So, we know that Jesus celebrated this feast, John 7, John 8. We know that Jesus is our shelter. He's our sukkah, Isaiah 25, verse 4. Just as he was to Egypt in the wilderness, he became that protection, a cloud, you know, at, uh, during the day, fire by night. We see Isaiah saying, when the Lord comes back and he sets his feet on Jerusalem, he is going to create a canopy over Jerusalem. He is going to be a sukkah for you someday. 
We know he is the living water. We know that he has prepared a permanent home for us. Right now, these are, this is a reminder. When you're sleeping out in your tents, your sukkahs, your whatever they are, this is a reminder. This isn't home. God is, prepare, or is preparing a permanent place for you. That's what you're supposed to be reminded of this. Are you getting tired? It's been a long week. Good. Good. Because this isn't home. So all of these things take place. I won't even get into Matthew 17 at the transfiguration. What do the disciples say? Do you want us to build three shelters? Literally three sukkahs? I think they knew that Jesus was supposed to be coming back around the Feast of Sukkot because Moses and Elijah, Elijah is supposed to come back before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's how the Old Testament closes out. Malachi, right? Who'd they just see? Elijah. We know you're the Christ. This must be the end. Would you like us to build three sukkahs? Last slide, Zechariah 14. If you don't want to celebrate this festival now, fine. You will later. Again, this has not happened yet. So for all the church who wants to say, you, you shouldn't do these things. That's a Jewish thing. Well, it says this, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations, isn't that all those nations again, which came against Jerusalem, shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. It's just the Bible, folks. Not Brian Young. This is Scripture. By the way, Passover is also mentioned in other verses there too. You'll be keeping that one as well. So, we do this to not only look for our permanent home, but we do it to celebrate Yeshua. That it's a birthday party for Him, I believe. And not only that, it's a time to look forward to Him coming and fixing the mess that we've made. A time when the law, He's going to come back, He's going to gather us to Jerusalem. He is going to sit us down and He is going to teach us His law. The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And we're going to understand it without any flaws. Without any mixed doctrines. We'll get it. And then we're going to get to obey it. Not out of any condemnation, fear of condemnation, uh, difficulty in doing it, but out of love and rejoicing. I can't wait. Let's pray.